I'm excited. Shush. <laughs> <laughs>
as you said, Asian, like, what does that mean? And then, you know, the, the very idea, like, the, that, the fact the word that minority is in there just implies a lowering of status. Mm. That you're basically saying by being part of that category, you will never be seen as equal. So even if you're saying it as a, like, these people should not be experiencing the discrimination they are experiencing, you're kind of reinforcing it mm. by saying... You know, they are a minority in the same way as Avta says that, like, women are always seen as men who lack and, like, who are never quite good enough. Or, like, working class people are always, like, seen as, like... Vulgar. Vulgar, stupid, like, Mm. whatever it is. And, like, obviously I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, the kinds of stigmatisation that is carried through those Mm. terms. And I understand why people don't like using the term politically black either, which... Is kind of was kind of born out of the idea that uh, we race- could unite against whiteness. Exactly, yeah. but then obviously, for a lot of people, that felt like they were just being homogenized into blackness. And there are different racisms that occur within racialized other racialized groups as well that mean that people don't feel as comfortable. Everyone being politically black. I mean, yeah. I think the the premise of political blackness was a good thing, but I think it's out of date now. Yeah. You wouldn't bring it back. I don't know. It feels like in this moment of extreme far-right narratives being in the mainstream that we kind of need some sort of unifying term. But people, rightly so, people that are uncomfortable with the term political blackness have got a voice and it's important that they have that voice and they're like, look, that person can't say they're politically black because there's a history there of them treating black people very badly yeah. and I, you, you've got to understand that and I do understand that but you see what scares me is we fall into the same trap that we've fallen before this whole scheme of labelling people of hierarchy of all this is left over from the enlightenment left over from the thing that we're trying to break down so the idea that you have whites blacks and all this this labelling is definitely from the enlightenment definitely from the whole idea of whiteness as being the default setting and everything else is colliery two or, or less than so I, I don't know how you get around this scheme because it's it's still so embedded in the Enlightenment thinking. In that passage you just read, what do you think Afra was saying in that piece? Well, I think what she's saying is, and I, I totally agree with her, that power is, and she says this as well further on, like power is so multidimensional. You know, like there are so, like hierarchies of power shifting and changing and also it's not it's not just like a top to bottom hierarchy like different people hold different power in different contexts Mm. at different times and that can be like cultural power it can be wealth it can be you know like there's so many ways in which people can hold power over other people that are so context dependent and for you to for one to divide that into black and white or white and other or minority ethnic I mean minority ethnic in itself it's just so like <laughs> it, 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 sounds, it, it sounds ridiculous but I like I've gone through a, a period of growing up and seeing like for example how people would name mixed race kids yeah, yeah I was half cast I was half cast so, until so, I was about so 11 school, maybe in school it I didn't even realise, as a, as a young kid, you'd say she's half cast, but you not realise... My nana still says that. But it's, like, it's, it's half a case, as in, as in, from the case system. It's half like, human. No, yeah. it's half forms. It's yeah, half, half form, but yeah. the, when, you, when you spit, it's like from the case system. So, cast. Sorry, cast system. So yeah. you know... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, yeah. 
as a kid, you don't realise that you just in, you absorb it and you just say it back. It's like Quasimodo, yeah. that's what it means. Yeah. That means. And you're like, this is insane. And then I've seen it. And then when they changed it to mixed race, the kind of the pushback from the older people, like, they were like, well, why do I have to say mixed race? Mm. To them, it doesn't make sense. And I, when they tried to explain to people, like, that, this is that's a better way of explaining it. They say, no, the labelling was correct before. What, half-cast is yeah. correct? That, that's how they see it, because that's what they're used to. And there is even a pushback against yeah. mixed race. Well, race. I mean, mixed race, I mean, obviously your whole PhD <laughs> discusses why that's such a problematic problem. Yeah. And it's to do with what Bra is saying here about homogenising mm. people that aren't white. It's a problem. Um, but I, also that whiteness is a default, default setting. It's a default setting. Exactly, yeah. But I guess the problem that we have, and... Tiso and I went to Kawan Bopal's annual quality lecture last week at the British Library, which was really good. Shout out Kawan. Um, <laughs> Come on our podcast. <laughs> um, but she made the point that the thing is, BME is a problematic term, but I have to use this term in order to get into the room with decision makers and tell them that they're institutionally racist. And like actually, this is yeah. the only this is the language that they speak in. And although it's problematic, like this is how we're going to make changes if we use their language. So it's it's a difficult one. Yeah, and I totally respect that. Like, what she's doing is bringing into educational, like, settings and into policymaker settings a conversation that is often not had or is elided or is mm-hmm. ignored and, or, you know, like, gets tokenised into, like, well, the diversity representative who could mm. be, like, anyone. You know, the idea of diversity itself, totally. The oppressions experienced by, like, a Jewish man compared to that experienced by a black woman in the same workplace will not be the same. To have a diverse, you know, to have a yeah, diversity... she's really, like, she's really quick, critical about diversity narratives and she says, the only pe- thing, only people that have benefited from diversity white are white women. women. Yeah, of course. But this is the thing. I think when we talk about stuff like this, it's trying to turn it on its head and get get white people to think about what it means to them, not being defined. Like in all the conversation, we're always defining the other. Exactly. But, but they don't define themselves. But I think that's what I quite like about the term "people of color" is to me that allows for like a huge spectrum of experiences without really picking on any of them, and also. Could, has the potential, I think, to form like a political solidarity against whiteness mm. or that like, questions whiteness. But then, what hap- What sometimes happens when we try and f- take control of terms that homogenise, like people of colour, like reclaiming that term, is that people that fall within that category let us down. And we'll, for example, f- well, for example, you'll get. Um, some people of colour who choose to use their, as Priya Vada said to us in a previous podcast, use their racialised capital as collaborators. As, yeah. as collaborators. Yeah, like and the guy who the Tories put forward for oh, was, I don't even want to say his name. I don't know what his name is. I don't, I don't, I don't care. He's well, a massive we, racist, but he's black. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So it's used, and also like it, using people of colour, even though I do use people of colour, but I do... I've found myself more recently using people of colour but also using black people because it ignores the... Sometimes it can ignore the racism of dehumanisation that black women experience and then the Islamophobia that brown women and brown men experience. So, I don't know, it's difficult. Like, I don't have... No, but a, I, I think- don't agree. I, I'm totally on your wavelength. I don't like BAME. I don't like BME. I don't like any of those things. I would rather use a unifying term, but I guess it's just important to keep critiquing I, I these terms. Like not. I agree. I don't think you could get around it, but as long as you're aware of what you're doing, 
you have to be aware of the history and critiquing it in that way. But we have to use those terms because that's what's used and widely accepted. And it's hard to think of, to kind of reinvent the wheel. It's very difficult because you want to be inclusive, but it's difficult to be inclusive. And that's very what, difficult. It's We're really, struggling. It's really difficult. And I saw um, Kalechi Okafor. Um, she is a black woman who is an actress. She's an activist. She she has got a podcast called Say Your Mind. It's really great. Listen to it. She was on BBC Breakfast like about a month ago talking about the racism directed at Serena Williams. And Naga Monchetti was interviewing her. Kalechi was saying the way Serena Williams was characterised was very, very racist. And she was like, well, well, she just drew her. Like, she just drew her. She's got bigger lips. She's got bigger lips. So she just drew that. And Kalechi was like, no, that is you're literally characterising the way black women have been characterised for throughout the whole of history as monkeys, as animals, as massive... As ugly. As ugly. <laughs> and, like, you have moments like that where you're like, okay, these we're putting these people together as people of colour and you can see how when instances like that happen people get uncomfortable with the term people of colour it's like that woman Naga Monchetti is literally perpetuating a racist stereotype and I totally I can like no 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 I, I totally agree with you yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't do. think that the idea of minority ethnic does much to challenge that no, no, of course no. of course <laughs> no 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 it doesn't and like, just you're give, right yeah I'm it's just a different of, argument I'm just sort of giving an example it's a yeah. different argument I'm just giving an example of why yeah. some why we're seeing quite a lot more vocal um opposition to terms that we have we have used ourselves i i will continue to use people of color because i try and use it in a way that's all encompassing i use it in the same way that renee adelog uses yeah. it you know what I really does annoy me though is like on. what one thing i like about the term people of color is it's not an acronym and there's something about acronyms yeah. that makes super dehumanizing i was talking about this with chantal just now like i much prefer the term queer than or like queer trans and insects, which okay sometimes does become QTI, but it's still better than LGBTQIA. Like I find all those really problematic because you end up by trying to differentiate to that extent, losing any sense of like a political identity of what it means to not <laughs> be Perfect. heterosexual. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly it. But then people, when people do the like POC thing, like cutie pock is queer trans and intersex people of color. And like, I just find like there's it's nothing immune it <laughs> because it how it's, I guess it's how it gets harnessed and yeah. used, isn't it? It's yeah. like, well, let's put the BME people here, let's put the LGBTQI yeah. people but, here. Yeah. Like it's. But this is again, this is a this is a process of enlightenment. We like to, we seek to like, we like to categorize and classify things. Yes. And, that, and that's still part of that tradition. And yeah. until we get part, past that tradition, until we out of that enlightenment way of thinking. We're always going to do that. We seek to categorise everything yeah. in that scientific way. And, yeah. and it doesn't work for human beings. And we know it doesn't work for human yeah. beings, but we still do Well, it. I mean, the idea of classification is an inherently colonial project. <laughs> like, Definitely. everything, whether you think of it in terms of animals or plants or people, particularly people, yeah. obviously. But the, no, but the There's I a form of domination. Mm -hmm. I'm going to name you. Name and I'm going to link... I'm going to find your <laughs> genus and then I'm going to, you know, create this hierarchy. And always, always, obviously I'm doing the leading. I'm at the top. Yeah. And until we get out of that way of thinking, we, we're always going to recreate that pattern. Devil's advocate. I mean, I don't even call it that. I want to call it like the white advocate. Mm -hmm. would say, well, how am I supposed to make changes? How am I supposed to tackle inequality? I guess, the, and I just thought of the answer as I was thinking it, I guess the answer is that we have to look at whiteness. Because because it's not working. It right. isn't working. Like you said, people were saying, right, we have to do BME. We have to do, we have to do, we have to do these categories in order to identify those who are disadvantaged. 
why don't we do the other way around? When you learn about racism, you're never taught about from the other point of view. So if if black people are classified as as disadvantaged, what is white people? It must be yeah, the advantage. Yeah, what's the advantage? What's the advantage? So therefore, you must look at whiteness now because you've looked at everything else, <laughs> looked at disadvantage everywhere but yourself. But then you might be calling people racist and people hate being called <laughs> racist. <laughs> but, but again, this is what I'm trying to say. Do you see that Afua Hush, um, when she was on LBC last week, she was basically explaining racism. Yeah. And then the woman on the phone I'm said, just... stop being racist. But, like, so literally by calling out racism, wait, so, the white I, woman was like, right, look, I, look, you're always making it about race. That's see, racist. I, I, I understand. I understand there's a feeling about why white people, like, because of the historical acts that have happened and historical acts that are terrible, sometimes they feel a sense of guilt, the overwhelming guilt that gets them. I don't think they know. <laughs> no, I think, I think even if they're not thinking about a specific genocide yeah. or a specific, like, Slavery, the act. general kind of notion that white people have been dominant and have mm. done bad things. Now, when you, when you start looking at white, white guilt and you're looking at whiteness, when I've been breaking it down, there is a fear that comes across in the far right narrative that if these brown people were empowered, they would do the same thing that they, what we did to them to us. So this is what you're going to talk about. So yeah, but you, I, so. I, I, no, 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 no. I think I guess, it links really well. I think it, yeah, it does link well. But I just want to say one thing, yeah. and it is about white people. Um, <laughs> one of my friends, shout out Rachel Cottis, has just started reading um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And she has sort of been messaging me as she's going through it. And it's so, like, I have patience for white people realising racism at certain points. And particularly, I have particularly more patience when they're my friends. Um, And it's been really interesting listening to her sort of talk about what she feels when reading the book. And the thing she does feel is guilt. And she has been messaging me like, Chantelle, I'm so sorry I'm so sorry that whenever you've had to have these conversations about race and racism, that I maybe haven't said things that are constructive. I understand things so much more now. She said, racism is everywhere. It's everywhere I look now. I can't get away from it. I see it everywhere. And I was like, this is... This is your activist awakening. This is, is, well, it's your activist awakening, but this is what it's like when you aren't white a lot of the time. Um, But also, no, but I think there is something, I'm not not disagreeing with you, obviously, like people who are always aware of racism the people who always experience racism mm. but even then like I think there are there's something about like, being given the tools to read situations in terms of like a political act mm. that does give you that kind of like oh my god I get things in a different way now and and something that has really been really powerful about her reading it and talking to me about it is that she hasn't said stuff to me like well how can I help like what can I do what can I do she's literally like I understand I get it this is shocking like she's not doing that thing that people do when we're on panels and they're like what can I do to help? Fucking read a book. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, this is to our podcast. This is to our podcast. <laughs> I, sometimes, I, sometimes equally, there's going to be people that don't care and don't want to, because they have a privilege. And so why would they change? Sure, and there's plenty of people who are racialised who mm. also think that people are whining on about nothing. Yeah, like, And it's like, part of equality that they shouldn't have to feel like. Yeah, they, exactly. Like, yeah. if we all agreed, then I'd be worried. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, justice now. So, you know. Tell me about white guilt. Or tell us about white guilt. 
Oh no, well, white fragility. White genocide. White genocide. <laughs> it's all the same. It's all the same. <laughs> all ends with the same. Yeah. Um, so, as you know, I've been spent the last, I don't know, few years kind of lurking around far right websites. I was on Gab, which is now defunct because. What was Gab? Gab was the Twitter, think, think of Twitter but with no rules. So you can literally say what you want. So. I mean, there aren't really any rules on Twitter either. And, so but Gab, you could literally say. They get rid of the like button. What's the like button? The so like you can button. Like button. Why? Because they're saying it it, it, it um, doesn't allow for debate. So people are just able to like stuff and not able to yeah, comment on about. it. It's literally like for the far right, that actually, like, a, that sort of thing. Well. Yeah. For trolls. Sorry, anyway. Can no, I no, say? but on, on that gab, you'd see one of the common things that would come up is white genocide. So white people are being physically replaced by brown and black people across the world. And this is part of the Jewish conspiracy, which sounds insane when I first read it. So as fast forward two years, now we're seeing this kind of move into the mainstream. So I've seen today an article by a guy called Professor David Blake. And he gives one of the reasons why the UK should leave the EU is part of the demographic shift which is a euphemism for white genocide. The idea that white people are going to be a minority in Europe, so that's why Britain should leave the EU. Anyway, it, it, this is the... <laughs> this, really makes me, this really makes me... It reminds me of the study which said that, like, leave, leave voters that voted on the ground of immigration voted because they didn't want any more non-EU yeah. migration. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. You're basically saying, I don't want any people that aren't white. But, yeah. but this, this has become a dominant argument. And like I said, the guy who in, went to the synagogue in Pittsburgh last week and shot those 11 Jewish people. Again, the idea that he thought the Jews were coming, the Jews were coming to replace white people. And this is in the Charlottesville march, one of the chants they were saying, Jews will not replace us. This is a key thing. I mean, theme. literally they won't, so in a way they were right. <laughs> but the, what a dumb chant. But the, the, the fear of, or the unsettling of whiteness and white power in a European context, in a global context, has unsettled Europeans, and uh, it's unsettled them to the point where, you like I said, these debates were almost fringe, but now they're becoming mainstream, as in where Trump's talking about stopping um, immigrants' children being born in the US being categorised as being American, because they fear the numbers that are against them. And demographically speaking, they're correct. So I think from the, I forgot the date from the UN is, so over the next century, the population will increase, or the global population will increase by four and a half, four billion, from seven and a half to ten and a half billion, but three of that is coming from sub-Saharan Africa because they have the highest birth rates. Now, we all agree. So there seems to be a global consensus that migration is an issue, but it's how you deal with migration. So at the at the moment, the kind of response from Europe has been fortress Europe. Let's pull up the doors. However, Angela Merkel in her last when well, her last acts that she's trying to do, she's trying to say we need to make the places where these people are from better. So she's giving some money to Africa. Well, different stuff. I can't remember how many African countries it was, but to try and to increase employment in those countries, so people don't want to leave. So it's trying to it's trying it's how it's that response how you deal with it. But this idea that white people are being replaced is a, a real fear, and it's driving people to kill people. And this is what's shocking. I didn't realize this this debate had become so normalized. So I don't really understand. Well, well, I think what what's kind of underlying that debate is this idea that whiteness equals purity. So, like, the idea that whiteness can be bred out, as it were, is the kind of fear, I think, that sort of mixed-race families give people that, like, well, your children won't be white, and now you're... You know what I mean? Like, there's all this kind of... And, like, 
I think what what they always point to is the failure of states. So if you talk about whiteness being bred out, so they'll say to you, well, look at the state of South Africa. Look at the state of the former colonies. Whenever they say black people taking over, these places have failed. So, What, because South Africa was such a homogenous and the, lovely the, place the, before? These are the examples they always give. So they say, look at South Africa, it's run out of water, it's come a hellhole. Look at Zimbabwe. <laughs> look at all this. So they... It, why is it, you know, I find it really interesting how much the far right talk about South Africa. For them, it's... Is it, it's interesting. Is that because, is that because of the... Apartheid. Is it because of apartheid? Yeah. What, because apartheid There's, is the ideal state? But the them it is. Oh, I see. So they see South Africa as having regressed. Regressed. So because they're not a part. So, oh God, it's no, be, so disgusting. Because black people are taken over, and this uh, is so. This goes back to the old idea that Europeans are bearers of culture. Yeah. And black people are just they're destroyers of culture. Um, but, see, why don't you read? As in, black people are destroyers of culture. So in relation to that, and white fragility slash privilege. Why don't you read? Um, white privilege: the myth of a post-racial society by Cowan. Opal. So this is the woman that you yeah. went to hear speak last week. So in the opening book, she says, white people from the most to the least powerful feel beleaguered. The ground beneath their feet trembles. India and China are becoming stupendously productive and assertive. Within Western nations, indigenous citizens feel demographically endangered as their numbers fall or immigrants have with high birth rates take over in inverted commas. These are the prime evil fears of survival, not in the usual sense of life and death, but the hitherto unconquerable might and right of whiteness. Might and right of whiteness, I quite like that. That's good. That was, is that the four, yeah, that's it's the four word by Yasmin Alibar Brown. But this, uh, these ideas are so tied to the colonial experience and to, so tied to these notions of hierarchy that, that in 2018, I'm fed up of. I truly am fed up with these things. That's what it, it was really interesting listening to. Um, I know we've spoken about it quite a few times. He's been on the podcast, but Satnam Verdi's argument that in order to trace where we are now, we have to look at racisms. I don't know where I think I do definitely As agree in with histories what he's, of histories of racisms and how racism manifests and like that idea that the in quotations, non-whites and particular groups have experienced this in different ways, are um, stupid, ugly, are impure, and not even focused on whiteness, just looking at the other as, as, yeah. as um, uh, in quotation, yeah, race. That's why we are where we are. But I, I think that argument, although I, I definitely do agree with it, does miss maybe the importance of whiteness? Or do you think he does think, cover no, it? I think whiteness even excludes other white people, other white groups that are classed class as white, so like the gypsies and, and Jewish and people. They're not, but they're not white. Irish people, but they be, they're classed. So in terms of, in terms of like educational achievement and their classes, so in that sense, whiteness becomes white middle class and they disregard, so what's not them is white working class chavs and how they describe it, it's everything uncouth and not, not matching middle class sensibilities. And this is this this is what you're seeing, this kind of dynamic of whiteness. It, it's, it needs to analyse itself now. It's problematic itself because, like I said, everyone else has been looked at and studied and we know what's, what, what's up with us. But now we... This is what, if anyone out there is listening who has access to PhD funds, this is what Tiso <laughs> wants to look at in his PhD. And it's not so that no one has ever looked at whiteness, but the point is that white anxiety are, are dictating our politics now. And the reason oh God, what Tiso was doing was so prescient a couple of years ago is that 
the things that were fringe and that were like dismissed as like oh these like swivel-eyed loons they are literally they are daily news they are like I literally so we've talked a lot about Radio 4 on this podcast and I'm still <laughs> listening to Radio 4 uh, but my dad my misguided father still listens to it and I heard I was you know like brushing my hair or something and I overheard the radio in the kitchen Michelle Hussain saying far right terrorism has shock gone up shockingly in the past couple of years and she said it in this like shockingly voice and I was like the BBC is so complicit in normalizing far-right discourse like just far-right ideas you know Tommy Robinson Nigel Farage like the ideas that migrants are you know somehow destroying the fabric of British society swarming, swarming in on us they're the reason that you can't get a house they're the reason you can't get a job they're the reason your kids aren't doing well at school they're a reason your school teacher like every everything the reason you can't get an appointment at the doctor's like, like every structural issue gets scapegoated onto migrants, and that has become totally normal. And like we've talked this before on the podcast, how like you'll get some racist talking for twenty minutes, and then you might, if you're lucky, get an anti-racist being like, "By the way, that's racist," and then that's it. Like yeah. there's no critical analysis of why suddenly Tommy Robinson is mainstream. <laughs> Uh, even the, his whole idea, the whole persona, the, his name is kind of after a f- football hooligan. I, the whole, the way the narrative has gone is it's troubling because, like I said, this was fringe only a few years ago, and I would go to dinner parties and tell it as a story, like as, as a joke. Look how crazy these people are! But now I'm talking to people and they're telling me seriously about European European superiority. So I think someone sent me a meme. And it's a meme that's been changed over time. So before it, it showed the ascent of man. So from a caveman to where we are now. And obviously that's a white person. But then the, the monkey used to be a black person, but now it's been switched to a, a Muslim, showing no progress. So these ideas are so deeply embedded, deeply rooted. What did I tell you? My granddad said to me the other day. You know, my granddad would not think of himself as a far-right zealot. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is a new view of his. I was just about to say... No, this is... Like, I don't... You know, he probably reads the Telegraph, but I don't think this is, like, some, like, revelation to him. Um, I was talking about the podcast that we did um, with, at my research group and how, you know, it's really difficult for black students to get PhD funding, but I was really chuffed because someone had got in touch with us on our website. If you do want to email us, please do. We love getting comments from our <laughs> listeners. Um, and my granddad goes... Well, this might be a sweeping generalisation, but on I'm the gonna whole... I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> on the whole, Europeans are educated, and on the whole, Africans are not. And my mum was just like, and that's racist. And I was like, and I'm going to bed. Like, I was just like, I'm not going to sit here and listen to it. But this is also the man who, when Boris Johnson said the letterbox thing, was like, well, yes, obviously I disagree. Uh, I think, no, obviously I think Boris Johnson's an odious man, but I totally agree with what he says about women who wear the burqa. And I was like... That's an appalling thing to say, and you as a Catholic should be defending other people's right to practice their faith. But also a very normal thing to say, and that is what is really disturbing, is that I think he's probably always thought these things. Yeah. And whether or not he thinks it's okay to say now, or whether or not he's always thought it's okay to say it, he is just saying something that political pundits will be given a voice on mainstream channels to say, because it's not racism anymore, it's debate. Well, this is, so when Brexit happened, these things have never gone away. Because it's never been resolved. So at this point, people feel 
like white people saying, we're just speaking the truth in inverted commas. And so if I can't speak the truth, so that's how they'd be able to dress this up in their freedom of speech argument. So they're saying, this is, the, this is one point of view I'm trying to say, and it's not racist, it's just my point of view. And it's lots of people want to say that. So Tommy Robinson and whoever, they represent that kind of thing. And when they say, like, when they get mainstream accessibility and they say this stuff, you do get people that we know share spaces with that will be like, yeah, well, I mean, it's a bit vulgar to say that, but they've got a point. I, th- I see what they're saying. So most people say it's common sense. It's just that's what, actually, and this is before this all became mainstream. Yeah. I was dated to go, and uh, he said to me something like, oh, well, you know, I think it's important to listen to, like, different people if you don't agree with him. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And he was like, for example... <laughs> He was talking to this guy who said something like, well, you know, the trouble is, is once you get, like, brown people take, like coming to a town, once the balance tips towards there being more brown people than white people, the balance never goes back. And, I, like, you know, like Leicester, for example, which is where my family come from, and, you know, the older, the older generation have a lot of fear about that. And um, I was like, no, he doesn't have... And, no. and then this guy was like, yeah, he has a point, you know, like that kind of fear like that town has changed forever but you see, this, this, I was like no now you're entertaining racism <laughs> you can listen to that guy if you want to and not start an argument with him but to then be like oh I see what he's saying but you see those, those, this is what your PhD yeah, proposal is those anxieties are so deep so it turns into the idea of white flight so my yeah. area was a white area and then when the Bangladeshis came in the 80s literally the white people moved to Essex which was not even, not even any uh, uh, nothing town then and this fear is so primal. And if you ask them, so I've asked my friend, um, well, why do you feel like this? Sometimes they can't even give the answer. They don't, they don't have a, a rational reason. Sometimes it's more about how they feel. And this is what the interesting thing is as well. With places like Leicester, like with the East End, like, why are there loads of South Asians in Leicester? Because there were textile factories there and the British Empire needed workers for their textile factories. So they were like, come over here and work for us. And then the textile factories closed. And for some reason, people want to stay in the places they've moved to. (laughs) But like that narrative always gets ignored. And and what's been really interesting, I've been, um, myself, Tisa and Saskia, I've been trying to get... If anyone's listening to this now, we're getting TSO PhD funding. And in that, I've been learning a lot about <laughs> migration histories. Yeah. And TSO is explaining to me about how Bangladesh- Bangladeshis that came over in the 70s, obviously the product of the empire and whatever, came from the countryside. That's what, yeah, they're from select these ones. I didn't know, like, I don't As know. Meaning they weren't. They, they, they selected like the countryside, countryside. An people. urban elite yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. That sort of history. But I think is, this. This is the point. I think if you're not, if we don't understand our history, you you have such a narrow concept of what, what British is. So, with this narrow concept we have now, British is a, Britishness is, ta- is attached to whiteness, when really the Britishness extended. We had an empire. We all fought World War One, World War Two. We, we lived this. It's our history. But by having this narrow conception, you still European British people or Europeans still see themselves at the top of the tree. Who was it who said this? Was it at the conference we went to the other day when someone was like, the thing is, is everyone makes out like white English people were so shocked when people arrived from the colonies after the war, like Mm. black and brown people arrived. But actually they weren't shocked because 
like plenty of British people, including working class people, had been living, living it, yeah. in colonial Listen, countries. Yeah. Listen, and, also, and also, like this position of like 1940... Um, was it the British Immigration Act? Yeah, yeah. No, no, Wimrush. Wimrush. Like, Wimrush. Wimrush. Yeah. That was like the marker. It's just complete bullshit. Yeah, of course In 1930, is. there was a report, and I've been writing about this in my PhD, <laughs> the Fletcher Report, yeah. which was commissioned <laughs> by the government to assess whether Bristol, Liverpool and Cardiff had a problem with half-castes because <laughs> those were the seaport towns yeah, yeah. that had black report. people. I mean, Elizabeth and I wrote a treatise or something arguing there were too many black people in England. Yeah. Like, these fears are ingrained into our But it's, like, really, it's really problematic when we put, like, a date on yes. these th- yes. of these fears starting yes. because... But, the, you see, how, once you put a date on it, so this when people would say, so white working class... Sorry, people would say now that... This is when the decline set in, when mass immigration set in. So they always say, it's when news came over, it all went to shit. Oh, and the people that are leading those debates are the people that mobilise a notion of a white working class and say to them, or or in, create this group, which are supposedly the people that have been... Yeah threatened and pushed out by what and they who gets ethnic minorities in that group of white working class yeah who gets included in it and it's meant that the people that use the term white working class are people that are not affected by a scarcity of resource yeah i mean it's the idea literally a that political mobilization over and taking our jobs is a nonsense like we know that that's a nonsense because actually employment has gone up in an age of like high migration employment has gone up it has not gone down the reason people are coming here is because there are lots of jobs because there's a demand that's why people have been coming to the uk well, that may not be the case for much longer but listen, the flip side is we have to understand our role in those countries and what we did to those countries yeah. and what we still continue to do. Well, and, and I, sorry, I just want to say another point is the thing of like pre-Windrush is the idea that firstly, people saw themselves as white English as a homogenous category, but also that Irish people were not seen as white no. and they were not seen as part of the English working class. Mm. And there was mass Irish migration mm-hmm. to the to Great Britain from the early to like late 18th century because of famine in I Ireland mean, and you know like million, a million people died and a million people migrated yeah. so the idea that somehow like we can like Britain conceived of itself as a homogenous white nation yeah. is a fallacy yeah it, it seeks to exclude certain people that it doesn't, that it doesn't match up to its it standards of what it considers whiteness the sensibilities yeah. of being well educated um, I can't remember she gives a long list of them but like I said until we until this structure itself is inter- interrogated and looked at itself, I don't think we'll ever escape it because at the moment it's not self-aware. It just does. And everyone else has to be self We all have to tiptoe around it. But I guess the thing that I've been getting most frustrated with is the people that are perpetuating this. Who people are People that I believe should know better. Academics, sociologists, <laughs> like but, but but politicians. They're, but they're people, and like so they might they might genuinely agree with it. Like I know, but like the way you're talking about the self aware self having self awareness yeah. about inequality, but also whiteness. <laughs> I we're so far away from getting yeah. to that. Yeah. Like, like you, if you and can't, I were at that conference yeah. where a historian studying race and racism told us that 
people used to be racist because of ignorance and it's just like a gut emotional reaction to hate black people and <laughs> that really we should be reading Eric Kaufman, a known racist scholar, because he has all the answers. And like, oh, he should know a, better. Oh no, Saskia, he should know better because isn't he mixed race? Oh, sorry, you're yeah. right, then it's fine. <laughs> Bullshit! <laughs> I, I don't know. I, like I said, I, in my day-to-day... I like I said, I'm just tired of it, and it's 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 tiring because what do you t- start to tell kids now? Because being an adult is one thing you handle, but when you're a kid and you're in that structure, they don't understand that world. Well, they do because well, I guess they don't understand. They, they, they don't understand it, but they, wait, who's what kids? What so kids when, are I, we talking when about? I'm talking to like 13 and 14 year olds, and the optimism they have, and they're, they're trying to prepare them for the world that's coming, and you're trying to say, well, you're trying to tell them, listen, to be resilient, keep going, but you know these structures exist. I saw a really great thing the other day, maybe it was on Twitter, saying we should be arguing for resistance, not resilience. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I, in my way, that's part of that education, yeah. isn't it? That's I, 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 think, yeah, I, think, that's... I think it's both of them. I think both of them, you have to have both of those things because it, it's difficult, man. So what do you think about Kahinde Andrews, for example, saying that um, they're not going to look at themselves, so we have to create our own spaces? Particularly, and he's talking about black people in particular here. Black that's... communities have to create their own spaces he makes the argument that there's allowed to be religious schools for example so there should be allowed to be black schools what, what do you think about that I, I you know what that's not a new narrative that's what i know it's that, not a new narrative this, this, but he's this, bringing this, it back this has always been like a thing in america like especially in america to, to create our own businesses to create our own spaces and i think there's something to that there's a power to that but also we have to understand we don't live in a completely segregated world yeah so we have to have there, there needs to be a balance like we, growing up, obviously there used to be an Asian owned corner, Asian owned corner shop, but they used to be a butcher's owned by a, a white family. It, it was a, a whole mix of a community. Not no one's separate. You still can have your own thing, but you have to understand that we live in society together. Conviviality. Conviviality. I know. <laughs> I, I'm starting to think though, but I'm starting to think. I'm not fully on the Kahinde's way of thinking, but I am starting to think with things like university. Well, you want to set up a black university? Possibly. That would be so cool. But, like, that would be so cool. But I'm starting to think, like... Yeah. Like, I, going... If you go deep, deep into the bureaucracy, the narratives, what is perpetuated in university spaces, I am starting to think that the only way... But then again... Is separation. I don't know. But I don't know. I'm like, still thinking Given through. what British culture is like, it doesn't like a new university. Yeah. It doesn't like the idea of newness. If you train up black students and like and give them a PhD from a black university who is going to employ those well, students see, like you know the answer I, I yeah. think I think see we're like see when America has done it it almost seems they run parallel to so you have a Harvard so like in the kind of the, the governor race in Florida at the moment you have a, a, a black candidate that went to a black university and a white candidate that went to Harvard Yale etc etc so this is what I'm saying. It, Bought their way into Harvard. So one, yeah, they, it, it almost seems like they sit parallel too, but not given the same weight as the, the default setting. Well, this is why I'm, I'm with Saskia on getting rid of Oxbridge, because... Burn like, it down. Yeah, but... <laughs> because, because... It's a bastion of white privilege. Yeah. And any people of colour that they do let in, it just helps them to reinforce their own privilege by being like, look... We let in a brown person. Oh, don't worry, us. though. Don't worry, because they're putting on an extra year 
for people that you can do before doing your degree uh-huh. to bring you up to speed with all the white middle class people that That's have been so to private nice school. Because obviously your knowledge is nothing. Nothing like like the only not good knowledge is that which is learned yeah. in private school. Like oh, I'm sick I of mean, this. As a private school alumna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck off. <laughs> Um, um, Okay, so I'm going to talk about Philip Hammond's announcement in the budget on Monday that austerity is over. Yay! It's the end of austerity. And in that speech, um, Theresa May also said... Well, no, sorry. In that speech, Philip Hammond also told us that there was going to be no real-term increase in public spending apart from in the NHS. Boo. At the same time as releasing the budget, Theresa May said, on ending austerity, it's not just about more money into our public services, it's about more money into people's pockets as well. I don't understand. I, I don't understand. Like, I had to reread this. Right. Philip Hammond yeah. has said to us that there is going to be no real-term increase in public spending, mm-hmm. apart from that in the NHS, okay. which isn't enough anyway. Yeah. Um, and, within the, and within that same sort of parliamentary hearing mm-hmm. when they're doing the budget mm-hmm. stuff, Theresa May said, ending austerity is not just about more money into public services, it's about more money into people's pockets as well. Do they think, they honestly think we're stu- They are just having us... Like, I, I, there's no words to describe these people anymore. I don't know, how have we got here that they're literally allowed to just bullshit us every fucking day but I mean you know people are like I don't vote because politics is not relevant to my life I mean yeah fair enough that was just like utter bullshit Bullshit. it's just just, like they haven't even agreed between themselves what's happening but who is the people who is the more is the more money into people's pocket because they're doing some tax cuts tax cuts for the rich as well again aren't they Uh, so so rich people will have more money so who's because it's what I mean like it's so ending austerity is not just about more money in public services. It's about more money into people's pockets. Like so if you break that down, that, right, so I, well, if it's not just about implies that there would be money in public services. But Philip Hammonds has just told so, me that yes. there's not going to be any increase <laughs> in public services. Well, she's, so trying to, she's trying to sketch everyone. So for the, for the people that the people that thought it breaks it, when the thing was the NHS was it's a public service. She said there's going to be more money for public services. Yay, everyone gets happy and. You're going to have more money in your pocket. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a win-win. But it's not true. Of course it's not well, true. Well, and also, the NHS <laughs> thing is total bullshit as well because one of the reasons the NHS is under so much pressure is that they've cut every other fucking service. So anything that happens, they're like, okay, well, you'll have to go to hospital. And it's like, well, wouldn't it be great if we maybe had, like, social workers or, like, you hadn't cut every single mother and baby group or, like, group for older people so that everyone wasn't so fucking isolated or, like, university and housing so 400 people that didn't die on the streets between, like, 2016 and 17. Well, it was, you know, it was it was published about a year ago now, British Medical Journal estimates that... This was a year ago, so it's gone up, estimates that 120,000 people... 120,000 more people have died because of austerity. And, like, the BMJ is, like, not exactly, like, the most radical of publishers. No. Like, they reckon 100 people die a day because of austerity. And that is from things like poor housing. Or disability no cuts. Housing. Disability, disability cuts. cuts. Universal credit. Like, 
All these things, <laughs> which are the sign of like a rich and kind of like well-functioning society. You think like, what was the point in extracting all the wealth from everywhere else if you're just going to say to people like, fuck you. And these pricks, like Philip Hammond, Theresa May, Nadine Dorries, whatever, they're actually allowed to say oh, this didn't work, that didn't work, but there's going to be more money in your pocket, or we're not investing in that, but there'll be more money in your pocket. Like, they're allowed to just say shit now. I mean, where's the money in your pocket coming from? Are you stealing it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think she's, as Tiso said, is she talking to, she's talking about tax cuts she's for rich talking, people. I don't think she's talking about tax cuts. I think, I think she's, what she's trying to talk to everyone in general. So you're trying to make everyone happy. There's a win-win here. Public services, everyone agrees is a good, and more money in your pocket, everyone says yes. Doesn't matter who you are. So everyone's saying, yeah, it's a win-win. But the reality is, that's not going to happen. That's, that's never going to happen. it's not going to happen. And what also ties into the debate that we were talking about earlier, so obviously with our declining population, we have less workers. And how economics works is you need a workforce to pay for the economy, to pay taxes. So obviously we're having less people. Your European flight as well. Yeah, so exactly. As in people from people yeah, from Europe course. are leaving So if you've the got UK. less people, I wonder why. you can't pay. So what you, if you have less people working of working age, what happens is you either, either have to increase taxes or cut government or cut government services. And so the only way to combat this is to have migration, which is a younger workforce. So you need migrants to come in to pay for our Either future. Either that, or you need to up the birth rate very quickly. And that's not Increase taxes. <laughs> increase taxes. People can't to have children. <laughs> increase taxes. What? Just increase tax. Increase no, tax for rich people. No one ever Just do that. Just fucking do it. No, they won't. No just one do ever it. Do it. And mates, those are the people who are funding the party. No one will ever do that. Just... Do you know how many... And also... Like, it's stuff like private healthcare, it's stuff like, you know, like all those companies are all like massive interest groups and political parties. And uh, yeah, I. It, we all know that austerity is bullshit. I guess what really is painful is the sheer hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy, and it's also the lack of. You are, it's almost like you're not human if you're someone that has that is in need of state support anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's like, exploiting those currents in British society that have, you know, like, benefit cheap, benefit dodgers, which are, were developed was under new labour, let's be honest. This is not, like, in a way, the Conservatives have carried on, like, a much nastier strand, but, like, austerity was also started under new labour. You know, like, the idea of asylum seekers being some kind of like devil import from abroad rather than people who are fleeing desperate situations all of those things started like you know I've been currents in British politics for a really long time and I'm not laying all the blame at New Labour's door but I'm just saying I guess I guess the thing that breaks my heart more than anything is seeing particularly women that I know and how much they've suffered over the past eight years having benefits taken away from you that you are in need of for survival it's absolutely despicable it's evil it's disgusting what, these people should be i don't know how they sleep at what, night i actually don't what what annoys me is that this is not a new thing the way they've treated the poor is historically a tradition in the united kingdom but they've been bolder with it this time i, I, don't, I, don't, think, I don't think they've been bolder like so we categorized them into the deserving and undeserving poor put them in workhouses this stigmatization of the poor and when i say the poor i mean everyone we're all in it together and this they've taken away our sense of solidarity so we don't organise around the theme of class anymore. So you've they've played up identity, but disassociated class, so we can never join together. Yeah, that's true. But we're all in it together. Yeah, they're, able, like, to, yeah. they're able to carry on yeah. because we don't have a Th there's united no, class But I mean, it's like the gay marriage thing. Like, in some ways, 
A Tory government legalising gay marriage, like, 20, 30 years ago would be absolutely unthinkable. And, like, gay, like, the older generation of queer people, no, because they were hounded by the police and they were brutalised, really. AIDS thing and the way the Tory government responded to that, like, all that stuff, it was absolutely unthinkable. Now... The reason it's politically expedient to capitalise on, you know, like the pink powder or to pink wash everything is that rich people can be gay too and that's okay. So, like, you can be like, we're all for equality, we're allowing gay people to get married, wow, like, basic human rights, aren't we heroes? And it's like, yeah. Or, like, women. It's the same thing, you know, so the people who benefit from diversity are white women. Well, that's no fucking surprise, is it? Mm. Because, like, who's invested in structures of power... Mm. David Cameron's very happy for his wife to be earning loads of money to be head of her own company. Yeah. You know, Theresa May has benefited, like, plenty from... This is what what I tried to say when um, Jermaine Greer was on Radio 4 just chatting shit. And... um, (laughs) Which time? And I tweeted... um, about No, I... Yeah, and I tweeted, Jermaine Greer is a prime example of how not all women understand the issues facing women. Yeah. And I got trolled so hard. Did you? So like hard, <laughs> like so much. I had to like come off. I no, I had I turned the thing up, like oh, I turned yeah, the yeah. notifications off on it. <laughs> it's 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 scary. Well, like said, it's I, scary for me. Austerity, like I said, it's challenging communities that are already challenged, yeah, and struggling, and it's not helping us to be united. In fact, it's dividing us. And it's making us see, whenever the time of economic scarcity, people look at, look for differences. And this is what's killing our, our local communities. And I'm trying to say to the government, we don't, we don't have to have this anymore. Oh, well, don't worry, because in a big society, mm. all your, every, all, everyone's neighbours needs to help each other. So you shouldn't need help from the state, because your neighbour needs to help you. Mm-hmm. Like... <laughs> I d- it, it uh, big society is dead, Chantal. Like they gave up on that political idea ages ago. I did so. they? Yeah, they, they did. Yeah, they don't go on about it. Do they, they don't go on about it anymore. But but you know the implication remains. Like the idea of free schools is that whole idea of big society that like oh well you see a need in your community like just build a school like it's all we're giving you the power. It's like what well, that actually means is that pa- private companies can set up a school anywhere they like and make profit off the local government and the, the owner of the school can make two hundred grand basic yeah, salary exactly like that like. I think we all know who that benefit. Or like you know, UBS can sponsor a school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like what the fuck is that? But I, like I said, but these things take death. It will require a fundamental shift in in power to make people to make these changes. And I don't think these people are willing to make these changes. So it, it's up to us now to make these changes. And I think in the age of this information age we we're in now, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. We can we can decide how things can go. This is why the, this is why the elites are so concerned about. Uh, taking over the internet or spaces where, where people can gather because there's a lot of power in there. Well, I think in that's why, apart from the fact it's a socialist, Jeremy Corbyn is really threatening mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, establishment because he is very effective at mobilising <laughs> online and there are plenty of people who are willing to support him online. And you've got and the president of Obama mobilising online, first politician to exactly. do that. Exactly. I mean, and then Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, like, you know, yeah. you can garner a lot of support. Yeah. 
And that's really threatening to like established politicians who cannot galvanize that group. And also of young people, like as if the Tories have even bothered trying to Well they tried to people. they tried to do their own version of momentum, didn't they? Did they? I don't even know what it's called. I think and the website was just ridiculous. I, I and did not notice this. No. Oh, what was it called? Oh, if you remember what it's called, can you email us? <laughs> <laughs> That's where they stopped it. It was like their own version of it. God. And they just can't do... They're just not good at grassroots stuff because... because, well, because it's not grassroots. It's not grassroots, yeah. But like I said, the austerity... You know, you, you can see it in your data when you go to like the estates and you see how people... Or different parts of the country, like the north of the country, how it's decimated the north of, the, north of England... And it it makes me upset because we don't have to be this way. Someone's chosen to be this way. Yeah. And they make it seem like when they're telling me, when Philip Hammond's telling me one thing and Theresa May's telling us the other, they make it seem like we've got no choice. We've got no choice. This is how it's got to be. And George Osborne said it's going to be very difficult, but we will pay off that deficit and we will get out the other side and we'll be a right. truly great Britain. But, but the and then there's plenty of people being like, you know, this is really unnecessary. But, but <laughs> and see, also Brexit. Like, fucking hell. But listen, so someone in Brexit, so, so a lot of, you hear a lot of working class people saying, like, they're willing to take the pain of Brexit, so willing to have no money for a, a kind of yes, far so future that they don't really know exists. So this is what's happening alongside of austerity is that people are getting mobilised around the sim- symbolism yeah. of Englishness Feelings. and I'm not trying I'm not trying to feed into working class narratives about um, racism or anything like that I'm just saying that or narratives about working class racism yeah. narratives about working class racism yeah. I'm not trying to feed into that I'm saying that because it's everyone that seems to be that's that's on the side of the government or thinks that austerity is necessary it's like well it's, it's part of our it's, it's part of what we need to do but in order he, to get to a truly great Britain it, yeah we all got to club together but you see the power in that so with that with, but if you mobilise feelings you don't have to facts matter they don't, they're irrelevant where the money's coming it's irrelevant because it's about a feeling and if you can make people feel proud or feel like they've got a sense of direction, they'll follow you. I mean, yeah, it's a bit like we've got the 11th of November coming up and I'm always shocked by how many people I see wearing red poppies. So I think, like, <laughs> you're basically supporting warmongering. Like, the whole political project of Remembrance Day is remembering our glorious dead and being like, they died for a greater... No, they didn't die for a greater cause, like... They they were just murdered in some like godforsaken battle. You know what I mean? And there's mm, so mm. there's so much in it that I think is really disturbing. And then if you wear like a white poppy, which is the pacifist one, you get like shouts out in the street. You get you come on in for a lot of abuse. And that emotional attachment to war, like, I just think it's astonishing but that the government's stuff, garnered that. But it's all this stuff that they, uh, it's all these things on the sidelines that they club together in order to justify dehumanising social policies yeah. like austerity. Yeah. These are all the things that they use in order to justify mm-hmm. punishing the yeah. poorest, the most disadvantaged, and like I said, in, for, for the advantage. The fifth, sixth richest country in the world. Yeah. Like, I've seen, like, and it don't really, like, the, the levels of homeless people I see in the street. Oh, God, the, it, no, it's not just anecdotal. Like, as in, the numbers of homeless people are yeah. shot up. In Bromsgrove, my hometown... On the outskirts of Birmingham, there are homeless people. Like that—that that is that—that's that? un- that's unbelievable. Like I can't. I, I when I go back, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. it it's um, it, that if you're getting homelessness in towns like that, 
why sorry what is it particular about Bromsgrove that it's it's half an hour away from a city uh-huh. it's got a combination of middle class and working class families it's got a couple of schools it's a small area it's not a destination it's somewhere where commuters live okay so it's a commuter town i don't know to me that might be slightly anecdotal but when commuter towns have a noticeable population of homeless people i don't know i just because there isn't the resources there like homeless people like the the homeless population in westminster is like ten thousand. i think no it's more than that i think okay so i'm just looking on Full fact. So uh, that's a website that fact checks like news stories and stuff. It says around 59,000 households were accepted by councils as entitled to be housed in 2016-17. And this doesn't mean all homeless people are just the ones who are entitled to housing and not all homeless people are entitled to housing because goodness knows. Um, This number has been rising since 2009-10 and is up by almost 50% over that period. I mean... It was a lot higher in 2003 and four, but the point is that homelessness dropped by a significant amount and has, is now rising steadily. That's disturbing. That should be disturbing. Like, any rich society should be like, why are we not able to house people? I was working at a homeless shelter um, about three years ago now, um, weekly, and the guy that runs it is amazing. His name's John John, and he... I was telling him about how... Even me, at that time, as a 22-year-old, I was disturbed about how many homeless people were using this service. And he's like, the thing is, it's true, and I think it's likely to get worse. But what we got rid of post-1980s was youth homelessness. We don't have as many young people on the streets. But you can see that that has changed even in the last few yeah. years, I'm seeing yeah, young people younger like younger. I'm seeing younger and younger people on the street, and not that that makes it. I, I don't know. It, it's just I remember him saying to me, "Look, it's bad, but I know we've got rid of that, and that was only three years ago." Okay. Um, well, I think for, when we're talking about our cities where we live, like like London, it, it, the kind of anecdote that still always still rings true is if you've got money, you're all right. Yeah. And this has always been the case. If you're London's a great place if you've got money. If you've got no money, it's going to be a struggle. And it just seems the people who've got no money, it's growing. Mm. And the people who've got money, it's a small group. Mm. I had a funny conversation with my supervisor about this on Tuesday where we were talking about... Um, so my project's on people from the north of England who've moved to London. And uh, he was like... I was saying, you know, one of the problems I've been having is that everyone I'm trying to look for has a degree. And I'm, I was thinking, you know, how am I going to find people who are uh, educated at, like, school leaver level? And um, he was like, well, you know, it's just not like the old days, is it? Where people used to come to London, do bar work, see how it happens. I was like, people didn't used to do that, did they? And he was like, yeah, of course they did. Housing was cheap. And I was like, whoa. Like, that, the fact that that's just, like, that could even have been possible. But it's not even that long ago. It's not that, it's long, not ago. that long ago. No, and that's what, you yeah. know, was it last year or this year where it was like for the first time most home, most like rough sleepers are or like most homeless people are homeless because they can't pay their rent as opposed to drink or drug addiction. There's austerity. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Sorry. But this is, like, again, this has been slightly older. I see things change and you get a sense that when I was growing up as a child, especially in somewhere like London, there was a sense of community and a sense of people playing with each other and mixing with each other. But as things have gone on, 
become more separate. I've seen people become more separate on, on basis of culture, on basis of finances, and you've ended up seeing a world where we have pockets now. Yeah. But that's, be- that's because the ideological state apparatus has mobilised us to hate each other <laughs> by using policies that mean we don't get on because resources are so scarce and... Yeah. Manufactured scarcity of resources. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a Marxist term there, by the way. <laughs> everyone, everyone switches off. Just Marxist. for the yeah. listeners, Chantal is holding her head in a distressed fashion. I actually am. I can't... It's, I'm so... I hate them. I hate them. I'm... I hate them. <laughs> if I... The politicians. I'm just politicians. I hate them. But, Fuck the system. But I think this is the moment we're in. So, at the moment, I think people are disillusioned with politicians and politics in general. But so... There's no at, leader. There's nothing. At this moment, we can do it ourselves. We can do it ourselves. But and you can and you can see how this is how you can get someone like a Trump, or even someone like in the far right guy in Brazil. I can't remember his name. Let's not name him. No. But you see, the, the, at, the, at the moment, because people are so disillusioned with the mainstream, we can we we as in everyone can mobilize to get a bit our vision out there. But it just takes organization. I don't know how to do it or who to do it. But I feel at this moment we can do it. And if you would like to subscribe to Tiso's political party, <laughs> please send donations to. Um, please, can you guys? We want to try a thing where you email us. What do you want people to email us about? Uh, just anything. Just anything send us that's your thoughts or questions. What's pissed you off in society? Yeah. Which politicians? Or in your everyday. Um, send us nice emails, please. Yeah, no like, troll- you, can, you can talk about like difficult things, but just don't troll us because yeah, it's just annoying. I will read them out if you want us to as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's our email address? Uh, surviving dot society at outlook dot com, or you can just contact us via our website, or you can direct message us on Twitter. Or Instagram. Or Instagram. Or Instagram. <laughs> or Instagram. We're back on Instagram now. We realised people were engaging with us and I wasn't really on the thing. So Tiso's running it now. So check out that. Follow our Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> Tiso, Tiso gets addicted to social media. <laughs> um, you've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel, Saskia and Tiso. Um, we'll be back every week on a Tuesday. So don't forget to rate and subscribe.